George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire is nothing if not roughly symmetrical. The White Walkers and the Dragons aren't perfect equivalents, of course, but they both essentially serve as magical incarnations of the titular elements of the series. The dragons are called fire-made flesh, while the others literally have flesh made of ice. The dragons and the others are both thought extinct by the realms of men, but are similarly emerging from the far corners of the map as the story progresses, clearly headed on a collision course that will engulf Westeros in a magical war of ice and fire. That magical war will in part be fought with zombies, of course, and once again, we find that even the undead march to the beat of ice and fire. Up north, we have that growing army of cold whites. Someone should really do something about that, I'm thinking. And we also have the relore-powered fire whites, Beric and Lady Stoneheart, and perhaps eventually Jon Snow. Once again, we can see that they aren't quite the same. The fire whites still have a bit of personality left, so they're more fun at parties, while the cold whites, well, let's just say you're giving them the wrong address when they ask where the party's at. Most importantly, we have the families of Ice and Fire, House Stark and House Targaryen. They certainly seem roughly affiliated with the magical monsters of Ice and Fire, the Targaryens with dragons and Starks with the others, but at first glance, these relationships aren't parallel at all. The Targaryens and the Valerians before them, and even the Great Empire of the Dawn people before them, perhaps, are called the Blood of the Dragon, of course, and are magically bonded to their dragons in a way which enables basic communication and some degree of control. The occasional deformed lizard babies that the Targaryens pop out, which can have features such as scales, tails, and wings, suggest that the blood of the dragon is a literal concept, that there has been a commingling of reptilian and human DNA, presumably as a means of creating the magical dragon bond. The end result is that all three dragon-blooded people, the Targaryens, Valerians, and Great Empire of the Donians, if you will, used their control of dragons to conquer the largest kingdoms that this world has ever seen. The big question for us symmetry lovers has long been, is there any sort of loosely equivalent connection between the Starks and the others? Well, again, at first it doesn't appear so, since the Starks seem to be concerned with opposing and defeating the others, as opposed to using them to conquer empires. The Starks do magically bond with animals, but the direwolves aren't ice spiders or some sort of ice animal, and if anything, they often are described with burning eyes and serve as symbolic hellhounds. But what if I told you that the idea of a Stark who is magically bonded to the others and who can use them to conquer isn't so silly? It's kind of terrifying, actually. It's not silly at all, but it may have happened. Not sure if Starks riding ice spiders is a thing. I mean, who knows? But what I do know is that there is abundant evidence that House Stark is the blood of the other, in much the same way as those who are the blood of the dragon. Understanding this potential blood tie between the Starks and the others, if it exists, will surely be a key ingredient to dealing with the threat of the White Walkers. And to make matters worse, the origins of this blood tie may be rooted in an ancient pact between humans and White Walkers, one which calls for human children to be given to the White Walkers so they can reproduce. The breaking of this pact may be part of the cause of the other's enmity for humankind, and unfortunately for John, who might be the prince that was promised, this broken pact may mean that John is actually the prince that was promised to the others. Hello, this is Lord Brynden Rivers here, and I get all of my symbolic analysis from the Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel. Won't you do him a solid and click like and subscribe while you're here, and the old gods will favor thee. And now back to the regularly scheduled programming.
How was that? Was that good? I can do it again. In an ongoing effort to provide quality and value to you, the Mythical Astronomy listener, I'm actually going to present two related theories here for the price of one. That's right, buy one, get one free, a BOGO. Or maybe a BOOGOO. Buy one other, get one other. In any case, both of these theories have to do with Knight's King of Westerosi lore, the one Old Nan tells Bran about. The first theory is simply that Knight's King and Queen, sacrificing to the others, i.e. giving their children to be made into others, as Craster does, was actually part of some sort of pact that the humans made with the White Walkers that involves promising to give them babies every so often. The thinking is that the humans haven't always carried up their end of the bargain. I guess Craster's sons aren't quite enough to meet the quota. And so the only way to actually stop the others from killing everyone in Westeros at the end of the story is to sort of resurrect that pact, if you will, by giving them someone important. Someone like Jon Snow. This could mean that Jon would have to become otherized at the end of the story, a sacrifice the likes of which is truly terrifying to comprehend. The second related theory is my Blood of the Other theory, which is that the Starks descend from a child of Night's King and Queen who was supposed to be transformed into a White Walker, but was somehow rescued and raised as a Stark, thereby giving the Starks the Blood of the Other. This would compound the notion of a pact or promise to the others with a magical blood tie and a specific act of theft. So at this point, the White Walkers are pretty stinking mad. This also makes the Starks a much better magical counterpart to the blood of the dragon, again, for us symmetry lovers. And it means that Jon truly would have the bloodlines of ice and fire, of White Walker and dragon, in his veins. Which seems kind of poetic and fitting of the title of the series, and a whole heck of a lot more interesting of a way for the author to use that R plus L equals J thing than just as a political wedge related to the Iron Throne. Wah, wah. Sad trombone sound. The blood of the other theory is a little more complex and a little more dependent on some of my heretical headcanons, so we'll start with the basic idea of there having been a pact between the humans and the others that lies at the heart of their ancient conflict. This is very much an outflow of the notion that defeating the White Walkers, whether in the distant past or the near future, needs to involve something more complex than just chopping them with the right magic sword or burning them with dragonfire. Those things will surely be involved too, this is fantasy after all, but it's certainly smart to look for something a little more nuanced and more centered around the human conflicts of the heart that George talks so much about. In both the real world and in A Song of Ice and Fire's history, wars are often settled with pacts. Marriage pacts in particular, or fostering arrangements, where the children are exchanged as a polite sort of hostage. So, perhaps there was a magical version of something like this with the White Walkers during the first long night. As I just alluded to, Night's King and his corpse queen were, quote, found to have been sacrificing to the others. And because Craster's practice of giving his sons to the others is also referred to as sacrificing to them, we can therefore extrapolate that Night's King and Queen must have been doing something similar to what Craster's doing. If people have been giving children to the others both in the ancient past and in the current timeline, well, that starts to sound more like a persistent cultural tradition than just a weird thing that Craster does, right? It's also said in the World of Ice and Fire that the wildlings of the frozen shore worship, quote, gods of snow and ice. So, this practice of giving babies to the others may occur in various places and times north of the wall. Point being, we just said that pacts are often sealed by an exchange of children. So perhaps this tradition of giving children to the others may have originated with a pact between humans and others. A pact which presumably would have helped end the long night. Because what does Craster say about what he receives in return for his offerings? This is from a Sam chapter of A Storm of Swords. 
There had been no attacks while they had been at Craster's, neither whites nor others. Nor would there be, Craster said. A godly man got no cause to fear such. I said as much to that man's raider once when he comes sniffing round. He never listened, no more than you crows with your swords and your bloody fires. That won't help you none when the white cold comes. Only the gods will help you then. You best get right with the gods. Gilly had spoken of the white cold as well, and she'd told them what sort of offerings Craster made to his gods. This pretty much spells out the arrangement. The others and the whites do not attack Craster because he gives them his male children, which they use to create more others or transform into others, something like that. Video forthcoming. Perhaps this is simple mutual self-interest. The others are farming Craster's sons, essentially. But it's also struck many people in the fandom as indicative of an existing agreement between humans and others. The others clearly go away when you give them babies, to put it simply, so perhaps this is how we got them to go away in the first time. Some people have even taken this to mean that Knight's King may have been a hero as opposed to a villain. Someone just trying to keep the others away and honor the pact, you know? Or perhaps we should think about it more as a necessary evil, one of those bittersweet ending things we hear so much about, where humanity had to accept the other's blood price to end the war. Did the last hero make this pact with the others? Was he smuggling babies through the Black Gate at the Night Fort before Night's King did, or was he himself Night's King? Has the Watch been giving babies to the others since its inception? What a dark twist that would be, eh? There are a couple of reasons that I could see some version of these ideas turning out to be the truth of the matter. First, the Irish, Celtic, and Germanic folklore from which George Martin fashioned much of his own others, whites, and general northern culture is full of myths about fey creatures stealing human children or swapping in changelings for human babies, things like that. If the others turn out to be all about stealing children in order to reproduce, it would just kind of make sense in terms of slotting them into this folkloric family tree. Secondly, this sets up an interesting motivation for the others in regards to what must be done to defeat slash appease them, and ties into what I believe is the true heroic ideal of a song of ice and fire, self-sacrifice. If John and other heroes must make various kinds of unbelievable sacrifices to save humanity, such as losing their own humanity, I think that would definitely qualify as bittersweet. And in general, this just seems more consistent with A Song of Ice and Fire than a climax that primarily revolves around wielding spectacular power and might and smiting the foe in glorious battle. Though again, George will surely slip that in somewhere. The reason that Jon Snow would be the likely sacrifice to the others, according to this theory, would be that it was a Stark who originally made this pact with the others. Either the last hero, or Night's King, or maybe Brandon the Builder himself, if one person by that name existed. This would kind of make sense of that there must always be a Stark in Winterfell idea, too. Perhaps this is an indication that responsibility for this pact with the others falls upon the Starks, like, there must always be a Stark in Winterfell in case the others show up and demand a baby. Now, I suppose it could be any Stark as opposed to Jon, so what about Bran or Rickon? Bran did go north of the Wall at the Nightford, after all, where the Night's King sacrificed to the others. But it's been pretty much confirmed that Bran will end up some sort of king, somewhat like he did on the show, and I think the symbolic foreshadowing in the books points to Bran becoming the final repository of the Greenseer hive mind, which, in my opinion, never belonged inside the trees. That's a story for another day, but the point is, Bran's magical destiny lies elsewhere. And as we saw in the Lord Snow video, it's John, who has all the foreshadowing about ice transformation and about being given to the others, and there's even more specific symbolic foreshadowing about this that I'm going to show you in just a few minutes. John is also the one who has the mystery of Craster's children and the others unfold before him, almost as if this were important to his story arc or something. 
Plus, he is the one named Snow, Lord Snow to some. There may also be significance to John's Targaryen heritage here as well. I've theorized that Azor Ahai, who would have been a dragon rider in all likelihood, became Night's King and fathered the others with Night's Queen. Which means that the first children transformed into White Walkers would have had the blood of the dragon in their veins, albeit with the fiery nature of the dragon blood flipped over to ice via the magic of Night's Queen. I think there's a ton of symbolic evidence for this, especially in the cold star eye imagery of the others and the ice dragon symbolism we find lurking about up north and with the Starks. So check out Symbolism of the Others Ice Dragon, along with that Night's King Azor High video for more on that. But the point for now is that unfortunately for Jon Snow, being a Targaryen Stark might make him the perfect sacrifice to the others. Sorry, but there's a lot of unfortunately for Jon Snow the further we get into A Song of Ice and Fire, isn't there? So that's pretty much it for that part of the theory. The others go away when you give them babies, and giving them babies may be the way the long night was ended, at least in part. Stealing babies from the others, on the other hand, may be how the Winterfell Starks began. The blood of the other theory starts with a stunningly simple observation and question. If Craster giving his sons to the White Walkers to be transformed into White Walkers is some kind of echo of what Knights King and Queen were doing at the Night Fort, then what do we make of Sam and Gilly stealing a baby meant for the others, the baby called Monster? They even smuggled him through the wall at the Night Fort, the exact place where Knights King and Queen ruled. This seems like an obvious potential parallel, so we have to ask. Did some brave Night's Watchmen steal one of the babies that Night's King and Queen were giving to the others? And if so, what happened to that kid? Now again, I want to be clear that I'm operating on the premise that Night's King and Queen lived during the Long Night and created the first others, the case for which I laid out in the Night's Queen video. But even if you think that they lived sometime after the Long Night, the question simply kicks back to whomever it was that first created the first White Walkers, the people whom Night's King and Queen would have been imitating. We pretty much know for a fact that the White Walkers need human children to procreate, so at some point, someone became the first person to use a child to work some sort of magical abomination that created the first White Walker. Thus, when we see Sam and Gilly saving a child from that frosty fate and bringing him south of the wall, we have to wonder if, in a book series where all the major plot developments seem to have echoes throughout history, there might not have been such an event in the past where a child was stolen from the others by the Night's Watch. And by the way, I hope you can see how useless and dumb it would be if Night's King and Queen had nothing to do with the Long Night story. It's the only story we have that has anything to do with other creation, and Martin does all this work to set up Craster and his wives, Gilly in particular, as parallels to Night's Queen and King, and I just don't see why the author would do all that work if he wasn't trying to show us something very important, like the origin of the others. Now here's the real clincher for the blood of the other, stolen other baby theory, at least for me. Jon Snow's birth scene at the Tower of Joy also spells out the idea of stealing a baby from the others. Ned is playing the role of last hero, the Kingsguard are playing the role of the others as they are wont to do, and Lyanna is playing the role of Night's Queen, with Night's King Rhaegar in absentia. So what happens here? Ned and his wraith warriors fight through the other like Kingsguard and claim a child of the symbolic Night's Queen, with Ned then bringing the child home to Winterfell to raise as his son. 
The eye-popping historical parallel to this would be The Last Hero, taking a child of Night's King and Queen home to be raised as a child of Winterfell, which would then potentially put the mojo of the White Walkers into the Stark bloodline, or even back into the Stark bloodline, if Night's King or Queen was a Stark to begin with. All the Starks born since then may therefore carry the icy blood of the other, making them, again, a more perfect parallel to the Targaryens being the blood of the dragon. So let's back up a bit and fill in the details on these wild claims, shall we? As I laid out in Symbolism of the Other's Kingsguard, the symbolism of the White Knights of the Kingsguard is 100% White Walker, 100% of the time. Armor and cloaks, like snow and ice, ghost in the moonlight imagery, white sword symbolism, and above all, the shared White Shadow moniker. This Kingsguard White Walker parallel is a big hint that the White Walkers were created by a Dragon King, Azor Ahai just as the Kingsguard were created by Visenya and Aegon. Nowhere is this symbolism better spelled out than in the weirwood stump dream that Jaime Lannister has of being in a watery cavern below Casterly Rock with Brienne of Tarth. They're both down there armed with flaming swords, as they seem to be the last hero people in this roleplay, when they are confronted by dead Rhaegar and his ghostly Kingsguard. Listen. She put a hand on his shoulder, and he trembled at the sudden touch. She's warm. Something comes. Brienne lifted her sword to point off to his left. There. He peered into the gloom until he saw it too. Something was moving through the darkness. He could not quite make it out. A man on a horse. No, two. Two riders, side by side. Down here, beneath the rock? It made no sense. Yet there came two riders on pale horses, men and mounts both armored. The destriers emerged from the blackness at a slow walk. They make no sound, Jamie realized. No splashing, no clink of mail, nor clop of hoof. He remembered Eddard Stark riding the length of Ares' throne room, wrapped in silence. Only his eyes had spoken, a lord's eyes, cold and gray and full of judgment. Is it you, Stark? Jamie called. Come ahead. I never feared you living. I do not fear you dead. Brienne touched his arm. There are more. He saw them too. They were armored all in snow, it seemed to him, and ribbons of mist swirled back from their shoulders. The visors of their helms were closed, but Jamie Lannister did not need to look upon their faces to know them. Five had been his brothers. Oswell Went and John Derry. Lewin Martell, a Prince of Dorne. The White Bull, Gerald Hightower. Sir Arthur Dane, Sword of the Morning. And beside them, crowned in mist and grief with his long hair streaming behind him, rode Rhaegar Targaryen, Prince of Dragonstone and rightful heir to the Iron Throne. Rhaegar's shade later burns with a cold light in the stream, which is a dead ringer match for the burning cold descriptions of the others and their cold star eyes. Rhaegar's ghost is leading misty, snow-armored shades, riding ghostly horses that make no sound, and their swords also make no sound when they're drawn. So here you can really see the symbolic picture. Knight's King is like a ghostly, transformed Dragon King, and the others are like his Kingsguard. They ride out of the mists and darkness on the lookout for heroes with burning swords whose flames they would like to extinguish. In fact, the whole thing actually feels similar to the others confronting Waymar in the A Game of Thrones prologue, especially when the flames of Jaime's sword go out as the other-like shades rush him as he wakes. So now, picture the Tower of Joy, with those three other-like white knights standing outside the tower, guarding Baby John and Lady Lyanna inside. The blue eyes of death are watching from the sky via those blue rose petals, as we discussed in the Lord Snow video, a symbolic representation of the other's interest in the goings-on here. 
It shouldn't be hard to see Ned Stark as the last hero figure, and this is also emphasized by his six companions being twice called Grey Wraiths, because the Night's Watch are often described as Black Shadows, and because they have all the death symbolism that I discussed in the Green Zombies series. Cold Hands is literally a Wraith Night's Watchman, John will be one too after he's resurrected, and I believe that the original last hero also became a zombie. I mean, it's really just the best way to handle the frozen deadlands, because when you're undead, you don't need to eat, sleep, or stay warm, which are all the challenges of an Arctic climate. But I digress. All of this symbolism sets up a very nice Last Hero and the Watch versus the Others type of duel here at the Tower of Joy, and the presence of Arthur Dane and Dawn adds an extra layer of War for the Dawn symbolism to the mix. I've made a pair of videos about the possibility that Dawn was actually the Dragonsteel Sword of the Last Hero, and thus the original Ice of House Stark, after which they named their later swords. And here we see Last Hero Ned essentially taking that sword from the symbolic Others along with Jon after the fight. Don't want to go too far down the magic sword rabbit hole, but suffice it to say that the presence of Dawn lends a little more weight to the interpretation of this exchange as a parallel to the affairs of the Long Night. One other thing worth mentioning, both the scenes here and Jamie's weirwood stump dream vision involve extensive discussions of oaths and vows that have been kept and broken, which kind of makes you think about the possibility of pacts and oaths between humans and others, doesn't it? Even last hero Ned makes a new oath to the dying Knight's Queen figure, Lyanna. Promise me, Ned, her famous last words. And surely that promise involved raising John at Winterfell as his son. The potential parallels here practically leap off the page. Even the fact that the Knight's Queen figure is the last hero's sister is worth pondering too, perhaps another day. Now, as to that Night's Queen Lyanna thing, let me show you why we can feel confident about that symbolic parallel. The Blue Winter Roses are her most famous symbol, of course, and the Blue Rose Crown that Rhaegar sets in her lap with his long lance, and yes, that's supposed to symbolize what you think it's supposed to symbolize, is called as blue as frost. Frosty winter crowns go on frosty winter queens, if you catch my drift. And yeah, that's a snowdrift joke. I'll also point out that Gilly, another Night's Queen figure, is named for a flower, the Gilly Flower. Wikipedia informs me that the Gilly Flower is featured in Shakespeare's Winter's Tale, so perhaps Martin chose the name Gilly with that in mind to match Lyanna's blue winter roses. And just in case we had any lingering doubt about equating Lyanna with Night's Queen, George Martin served up this passage from The World of Ice and Fire, which describes the circumstances around Rhaegar and Lyanna's coming together. With that simple garland of pale blue roses, Rhaegar Targaryen had begun the dance that would rip the Seven Kingdoms apart, bring about his death and a thousand more, and put a welcome new king on the Iron Throne. The false spring of 281 AC lasted less than two turns. As the year drew to a close, winter returned with a vengeance. On the last day of the year, snow began to fall upon King's Landing, and a crust of ice formed atop the Blackwater Rush. The snowfall continued off and on for the best part of a fortnight, by which time the Blackwater was hard frozen, and icicles draped the roofs and gutters of every tower in the city. As cold winds hammered the city, King Aerys II turned to his pyromancers, charging them to drive winter off with their magics. Huge green fires burned along the walls of the Red Keep for a moon's turn. Prince Rhaegar was not in the city to observe them, however, nor could he be found on Dragonstone with Princess Elia and their young son Aegon. Not ten leagues from Harrenhal, Rhaegar fell upon Lyanna Stark of Winterfell and carried her off, lighting a fire that would consume his house and his kin and all those he loved, and half the realm besides. 
Okay, so winter returns with a vengeance, hammering King's Landing with its cold winds, encasing the city in ice, and even causing the Blackwater Rush to freeze over. It was the sort of winter people tried to fight off with fire magic, folks. Fires set along the walls. Gosh, that sounds like Melisandre burning night fires at the base of the wall, as she does in A Dance with Dragons. I'll also point out a sneaky wordplay clue that Martin likes to employ whenever he talks about Night's King stuff, which is the word Fortnite. Fortnite. Night Fort. You see, don't snicker though, skeptics. Martin is a writer and an uber nerd, and we writerly uber nerds simply love wordplay stuff like this. The key is to surround simple word puns like this, or like all those other double entendres, with actual symbolic clues that we can recognize, such as the phrase cold winds and the idea of fighting off a vengeful winter with fire magic. And here it's a fortnight of falling snow and cold winds blowing. Oh yes, and this winter lasted two turns. That's two moons turns, or two months. But it's also a way of reminding us of the Carthine moon cracking myth. Once there were two moons in the sky, but one wandered too close to the sun and cracked from the heat. A thousand thousand dragons poured forth. And of course, those moon dragons were really moon meteors, which is why this fable is really a foggy memory of the Long Night Cataclysm. Those moon dragon meteors caused the terrible winter of the Long Night, and of course you'll recall from the Lord Snow video that we've repeatedly seen moon destruction language and moon meteor language surrounding Jon Snow. At the Tower of Joy, the blue eyes of Death Rose Petals are playing the role of the moon meteors, as I told you last time. And the role of cracked and bleeding moon in this scene is played by Lyanna, who lies atop the tower, i.e. in the sky, in her bed of blood. And indeed, we even see the blood-streaked sky outside to complete that that Lyanna in the sky with bleeding stars imagery. Thus it's no wonder to find the two moons clue here in this narrative about Rhaegar and Lyanna's love affair that sounds so very much like the Long Night. You'll also notice the line about the pyromancer's fires burning for a moon's turn, which similarly implies a burning moon disaster and bleeding stars which are moon meteors. And so, it is during this symbolically potent winter that Night's King stand-in Rhaegar, in all his night-black armor, carried off his Ice Queen, just as Night's King saw Night's Queen and, quote, chased her and caught her and loved her, and then brought her back to the Night Fort and proclaimed her a queen. Just as the unholy union of Night's King and Queen was, in my opinion, the origin of the others and thus of their invasion of Westeros, Rhaegar's carrying off of Lyanna was an act which ripped the Seven Kingdoms apart and consumed his house and half the realm. This war only ended when a last hero type showed up at a fortress, guarded by symbolic others, and rescued the child of Night's King and Queen, and brought him home to be raised with the Starks as his own child. And although Jon is a Snow, meaning a bastard, he is in line to potentially become a Stark for True and the Lord of Winterfell, due to Rob's will that legitimizes Jon as a Stark. If this happened with the original stolen other baby, then all of the Starks born since that day would indeed be the blood of the other. So now you can really see why it has to be John if there is some sort of baby debt owed to the others. George has used the scene of John's birth to tell the story of the stolen other baby. And then when John grows up, George uses his chapters to reveal the secret of Craster giving his children to the others, which continues to inform us about Night's King and Queen and the baby that someone might have stolen from them.
Speaking of John becoming legitimized, there's a quote about Stannis offering that very thing to John, which mentions Baby Monster, the actual stolen other baby in the story, and compares him directly to John. If you recall, Stannis's offer of Winterfell and the title of Stark comes along with the onerous burden of marrying Val the Wildling, who is, of course, another Ice Queen, Night's Queen figure, as we've discussed. Here's John's inner monologue concerning the matter. I would need to steal her if I wanted her love, but she might give me children. I might someday hold a son of my own blood in my arms. A son was something Jon Snow had never dared dream of, since he decided to live his life on the wall. Val would want to keep her sister's son, but we could foster him at Winterfell, and Gilly's boy as well. Sam would never need to tell his lie. We'd find a place for Gilly too, and Sam could come visit her once a year or so. Mance's son and Craster's would grow up as brothers, as I once did with Rob. This narrative creates a double layer, <laughs> buy one get one free, of Night's Queen Baby becomes the Lord of Winterfell symbolism, actually. John is the son of a Night's Queen and King figure, and he's becoming Lord Stark. And then his potential child with Val, another Night's Queen figure, would be his heir and the next Lord of Winterfell. At this point, you might be thinking of the story of Bale the Bard, since that's presented to us as an obvious parallel to Rhaegar and Lyanna's story. Bale is a singer and a musician like Rhaegar, and he abducts a maiden of Winterfell associated with a blue rose, as Rhaegar did. Bale's child, with the Winter Rose Stark Maiden, grows up to be Lord of Winterfell, however, which repeats the symbolism yet again, as yet another Night's King figure has slipped his seed into the Stark bloodline, just as Rhaegar did, and yet another Night's Queen child becomes Lord of Winterfell. There are plenty more parallels between Rhaegar, Bale, and Night's King, which I detailed in the A Baelish Bard and a Promised Prince video, which is actually where a lot of this material is coming from, so be sure to check that out. One of my favorite parallels is that Bale abducted, quote-unquote, his Blue Rose Maiden to the crypts of Winterfell, while the Night's King carried his queen back to the Nightfort. Both locations pretty much reek of death and underworld symbolism, and though the Tower of Joy, where Rhaegar carried Lyanna off to, doesn't fit that pattern, Lyanna's statue is now, of course, down in the Winterfell crypts as well, with Robert even complaining that Rhaegar really won because he, quote, has Lyanna, meaning that they are together in the afterlife. As many of you know, all of these abductions of maidens down to the underworld are very much modeled after the story of Hades and Persephone, which is a tale designed in part to explain the cycle of the seasons, with the abduction of Persephone being offered as the reason for winter. And doesn't that sound just like Lyanna being carried away by Rhaegar during the year of the fall spring, which turned very quickly into that horrendous winter that we talked about? And once again, I'll climb up on my soapbox and beat my drum about Night's King carrying away Night's Queen as something that happened during the long night, and something that was the cause of the others and their invasion of Westeros. There's also some really wild, far-flung parallels, such as Peter Baelish. That's right, Peter Baelish, who is not a bard, but employs one, Marillion the Singer. This Baelish scoundrel essentially abducts Sansa Stark to the cold and dead Eyrie, which serves as an outstanding symbolic other's temple. And when Sansa gets there, she receives Winter Rose and copious Night's Queen symbolism. For you Sansa fans, you can find more on that in the Baelish Bard video, as well as the Signs and Portals podcast videos. Then there's Alanis Harlaw, Alanis being a naming variant of Lyanna, who's married to Bale on Greyjoy. Baelon, apply directly to the forehead, if you want an evil eye of Baelor, that is. So Lady Alanis Harlaw turned Greyjoy, she has her baby, Theon, stolen from her and taken to Winterfell and raced with the Starks, Oi. When she finally sees Theon again, whom she calls her baby boy, she says that the cold winds have worn her away. 
Her daughter Asha sees her parchment-thin skin and long white hair and thinks to herself, is this my mother or her ghost? So, like I said, the pattern of Night's Queen babies being taken and raised at Winterfell is repeated many, many times. Now, getting back to the passage about John fostering baby monster at Winterfell with Mance's son, well, that, my friends, is yet another suggestion that the stolen other baby, monster in this case, should be raised at Winterfell. Like I said, repeated many times the symbolic patterns are. Anyway, I hope you're entertained by this. As for Baby Monster and Baby Aemon Battleborn growing up like brothers, as John and Rob did, well, that simply places John in parallel with Baby Monster, further confirming John's identity as a symbolic stolen other baby like Monster. Cold Hands actually calls himself a monster, and therefore resurrected John will also be a kind of monster. Especially if the others steal John's body as recompense for all this baby theft. Alright, let's finish by talking about what this blood of the other theory could mean in practicality. It could certainly amount to the others wanting to steal John's body because they are owed a Stark baby. But there's another thing to consider. Set aside the idea of pacts and theft for a moment and simply consider the fact that John may have the blood of the White Walkers in his veins, because that's loaded with potential. Danny's dragon blood is surely part of what allows her to birth her dragons and even to dream of them before they are born. And certainly it's the basis for her growing bond with Drogon. So the question is, could John's blood make him capable of commanding and controlling the others or the Whites? Living tree statue Brendan Rivers, aka Lord Bloodraven, tells Bran that your blood makes you a green seer. While eating the weirwood paste and tripping his little stark nuts off will awaken your gifts and wed you to the trees. Lord Bloodraven is essentially saying that in the blood lies magical potential, but that it must be activated and awakened. So I have to wonder what will happen with John's latent other blood should the White Walkers try to raise him. This is one of the reasons why I was speculating last time that the others may want to possess John's body and make him a kind of new Night's King in order to break the wall or even the moon, thereby causing a new long night they can use to invade Westeros. We've already been seeing John's blood as magical because of his Targaryen lineage and his skin changer lineage, but it seems like he's actually got the red, green, blue trifecta of magic if he has the blood of the other, as I suggest. In a world where blood magic is the most powerful kind of magic, that's pretty potent blood, isn't it? It's also possible that even outside of other possession, say if John's resurrected by Melisandre or Bran, or if he's freed from other possession and his spirit is put back in his body, John simply being undead might allow him to awaken his gifts, so to speak, from his White Walker lineage. Perhaps resurrected John will be able to command the Whites or even the White Walkers. This would probably be at the very end of the story, if so. Think of John controlling the others in order to lead them back north and away from the lands of men, something like that. After all, the wildlings have been used extensively to symbolize the others, and John uses his connections to the wildlings to forge peace between them and the realms of men. If you like that idea and you want some real masterclass-level mythical astronomy on the topic, check out the video called We Should Start Back, the Prologue of a Game of Thrones. If we've got our symbolism right, the idea of John leading the White Walkers of the Woods back into the woods is directly suggested right there in the first chapter of the first book. An ending like this would really take the cake as far as bittersweet goes, and it would be a series of interesting subversions of expectations. Yes, John is the prince that was promised, but it doesn't turn out to mean what you think it does. Yes, John is a type of new Knight's King, 
But that turns out to be a good thing because it allows John to control the others and to save everyone. Now, my goal with these videos, as ever, is to first point out the repeating symbolic motifs and patterns, and secondly, to take a stab at interpreting them. So as always, I will invite you all to have your own go at this and see what you can make of it. The symbolic clues pointing to an icy transformation of some kind for John are myriad, and I hope with this video and the Lord Snow video that I've managed to lay out some interesting possibilities for how that symbolism could play out. From John being possessed by the others and leading them through the wall, to John using his White Walker bloodline to save the realm, or possibly both at different times. I think it's clear that John's remaining storyline is going to be a lot more interesting than what we saw on the show. Now that may be a low bar to clear, but then again, John may clear it by leaping the wall, or even by pulling down the moon. This is Lord Bloodraven speaking, and thanks so much for watching. Please leave a comment below, and don't forget to make sure you're subscribed. Maybe buy a t-shirt or a tote bag or something. Okay, I really must get back to my cave now. Do you have any weirwood paste or other psychedelics? Perhaps some mushrooms or DMT?